0: Galveston driving back, somebody asked me if, uh, if we caught some sun and got a tan. I said, well, uh, I got, I got red and I'll be red for about two days. And then I'll go back to being pale, but my wife caught a tan. So, so that's awesome. You know, when, when we were at, at, Galveston, uh, we, we, we were there for three or four nights. And when we, when we first arrived, it was in the evening and we were, um, it, it was dark and, we, we went out onto the beach. Now, I used to go out onto this one particular jetty. Um, it's like a, it's like a pier that goes out into the water, level almost with the ocean. Uh, for years, I would go out there and pray. And I would pray for my godly wife. So, so it was nice to take my wife by the hand and go out there and pray to the Lord together. So we, we, we took one another by the hand and we walked out. Now, something that you need to know about me is that I love, the ocean. But the reason that I love the ocean isn't because the ocean is comforting. Just the opposite. The ocean is intimidating. It's mysterious. It's foreboding. It's powerful. And when I'm at the ocean, I feel very small. So I I took my wife by the hand and in the night we walked into the edge of the jetty and the sky in front of us was black. The ocean was black. And the waves were crashing right against us. And it, it's unnerving. The ocean is on each side of you you, you. you lose your balance a bit. It's intimidating. And I, I wish that, I'm grateful. We were nomads for s- seven years before the Lord allowed us to buy this building. So I'm grateful for this building. Don't misunderstand me. But I wished that the venue that we met was at night on the pier in a storm in the midst of the ocean with crashing waves because sometimes i think that that we might approach god too casually y- yes jesus said You're more than my servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I tell you what I'm doing. You're my friend. So yes, we are friends of God. And there's that familiar aspect of God. But in that familiarity, I believe that we become far too comfortable. And in becoming far too casual in our approach of God, I believe that we shrug off holiness We don't approach Him with a sense of awe. We don't encounter Him in worship. We don't open up the Word and expect our lives to be redirected. Dramatically redirected by our encounter with God in His Word. So I wish that our sanctuary were the ocean at night with crashing waves to help us recapture that sense of awe in the presence of God. So I took my wife by the hand and we walked to the edge of the pier and at night with crashing waves with the ocean in front of us and the mysterious marine life beneath us, we began praying. And we prayed the names of God that we've reviewed so far. Holding hands, we prayed, God, You are our Elohim. Create in our lives. Recreate in our lives. Show yourself glorious. Oh God, you are El Shaddai. You are the God who provides in a manner that there's more than enough. Multiply fruitfulness in our life. Multiply fruitfulness in our church so that it is overflowing in every capacity. Oh God, You are El Elyon. Rule over whatever is inconsistent with Your character in our lives. Rule over this chaotic nation. And there, my wife, she just started crying. Just being caught up in the presence of God as we approached Him with a sense of awe and foreboding This is how Moses felt in Exodus chapter 3, when God introduced him to the next name that we're going to be looking at. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, open it with me to Exodus chapter 3. Quick context. God promised Abraham that he would have a land flowing with milk and honey. And he would be the father of many nations. Well, eventually, when he was a hundred, Abraham and Sarah did have that child. And his name was Isaac. Isaac. Well, Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. Well, Jacob had twelve kids, and these are the twelve tribes of Israel. So, when Joseph went to Egypt, and in a famine he brought the rest of his family into Egypt, they were there, and that's where Genesis ends, with Joseph in a coffin, but the people in the best of the land in Egypt, and that allowed the people of God to multiply. And there, for the next three to 450 years, we have a gap between Genesis to Exodus. And in that time, the Hebrews multiplied so greatly in Egypt that the Egyptians became intimidated by them, and they said, well, they're going to, they're going to take us from within. So they began issuing population control, and they would kill the firstborn male child that was born amongst the Hebrews. They caused them to be slaves. So... Here are a people with a promise and that promise is contradicting their reality. And it was discouraging and it was confusing and it was frustrating. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a scenario that was confusing and it was discouraging and it was frustrating? And like one of those... those? Those crystal balls that you shake, those black balls, and then the, 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 a a riddle emerges, an answer emerges. You just stare at it, hoping that some sort of answer or, or direction will emerge, but nothing emerges, and, and it creates this dissonance, because you know that there's a promise from God. You know it's supposed to be one way, but circumstances are saying it is an entirely different reality. And the question here is, where is God? Where is God when you know it should be one way and it's entirely a different way? Well, for 300 to 450 years, this is the people of Israel. This is the Hebrews in Egypt. They were slaves. They were in bondage. They had no land. their, Their firstborn male children were being executed. So, Moses was raised as a Hebrew, but as an adopted child in the palace of Pharaoh. So he was raised as an Egyptian. The best education. The best leadership schools imaginable. So when Moses is about 40 years of age, he sees this discrepancy between the promises that should be resting on his people and the reality of his people, though he's sort of a, a private closet Hebrew in Egypt. So finally, he sees an, Egypt, an Egyptian beating some Hebrews. He kills, he strikes and kills the Egyptian. He's scared. He buries him in the sand. He realizes he's found out. He winds up on Egypt's top 10 most wanted list. His people reject him as a leader and he begins running into the wilderness. He runs, he runs, he runs for 40 years. When he started running, he was 40, now he's 80. Very far removed from a heart that ever beat with a dream and passion and courage. Well, he met a girl in the wilderness, he married her, and he began uh, tending her dad's sheep. Our text picks up in chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, or Mount Sinai. It's interchangeable. Horeb is a mountainous region, like the Rio Grande National Forest. And Mount Sinai is a mountain peak in that region. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And behold, the bush was burning. It was not consumed. You see what's happening? A bush is burning, but it's green. It's not being consumed. And Moses says, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why, it is not burned. Well, let me summarize the next handful of verses for you. Moses goes up under the mountain he sees the burning bush he hears the voice of God God speaks his name Moses Moses God says your name twice you better listen well we better listen when he says our name once but especially twice Moses Moses and then God says to Moses the place that you are now standing is holy ground Moses took off his sandals he begins communing with God God begins saying, listen, I know what's going on. I am not absent. I am present and I am at work. And in fact, Moses, I am going to use you as an instrument of my deliverance to go stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses responds, but I I stutter. And then Moses goes on to explain why he is not the guy. And God goes on to tell Moses why he is the guy. Because you have no more self-confidence. And when you're at the place in your life when finally you are purged of hideous self-confidence, then you're at a place where you can be used by the Almighty God. So, Moses asks a very practical question. He said, look, if I go... And if I say that God just sent me to say, let my people go, if I tell that to my people, they're going to say, one, who are you? And secondly, they're going to say, who is your God? And Moses says, what shall I tell them is your name? And with that, we pick up in verse 14. God said to Moses, And here, God speaks His personal name. Here, God speaks His favorite name. And as we know through this series, if I tell you my name, you know what to call me. But when God tells you His name, you not only know what to call Him, but you know who He is, you know something more about the the eternal depth of His character, and you know what He wants to do in your life, with you, for you, and through you. There's hundreds of names that refer to God. God is one with hundreds of names. And here we have God's personal name. Here we have God's very favorite name. And it's an amazing name. And God said to Moses, You want to know my name? God says, I am who I am. You may be saying, What kind of name is that? We'll see. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is the personal name of God. I am. Really fascinating thing about this particular name is that this particular name when it was originally spoken by God to Moses consisted of only four letters and each of these letters were consonants. It's called the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton. It's a, it's a word with four letters and they're all consonants. And this particular Tetragrammaton, this name of God, is Y-H-W-H as it's transliterated in the English. And it was unspeakable by the Hebrews. They so revered God, they had such a sense of awe of God As as, as my wife and I caught a glimpse of when we walked out to the pier and we prayed God's names, that they wouldn't even utter this particular name, this tetragrammaton, YHWH. So what they would do was they would take the vowels for another name from God, Adonai, and insert that in the midst of these consonants, and it's rendered the Hebrew Yahweh transliterated into the Greek, eventually to the English. It's where we get Jehovah. Is it Jehovah? Well, Jehovah is the English from the Greek referring to Yahweh, which is our is a word that had the vowels of Adonai inserted into these four consonants. We don't really know in the Hebrew what this tetragrammaton sounded like. Because... Scribes inserted the vowels. We say Yahweh or Jehovah. Either is appropriate. But we don't really know what it initially sounded like. All we know is that they revered it with such a sense of awe, they wouldn't even speak it, which is why they inserted vowels from another name. What's cool about this name, though, is that, is that many scholars believe that the pronunciation of this name sounds more like Wind so it would be yo and i think that's a cool name what is your name and then the voice that sounds like the th- sound of thousands of rushing waters a crashing ocean that is powerful and yet gentle says you want to know my name my name is yo and what does yo mean this is amazing means, I am who I am. In other words, I am, first of all, that we derive from this, I am who I am. I am the eternal God. I am the eternal God. In other words, I have always been, I always am, and always will be. God simply is. God is saying, I am present tense. I'm not past tense because uh, you go to the past and I am. I am present tense with you. And if you go to the future, I am. I am. He is. He is the eternal God. Which is what the angels were trying to communicate when they worship Jesus who was and is and is to come. He is Yahweh. He is eternal. He is present. We read in Psalm 83, verse 18 that they may know that You alone, whose name is the Lord, and if we hold this verse up for a moment, how do you know in our rendering of Scripture whether or not we're referring to Adonai or whether or not we're referring to Yahweh? When we're referring to Yahweh, It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When we're referring to Adonai, it's capital L. Everything else is lowercase. It all points to God, but it reveals a different dimension of His character and aspect of His character. That they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the Most High over all the earth. He is Most High. He's over all the earth. He is existing outside of this earth. He is the cause that caused it all. We read in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4. Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh is an or the Lord God, when that's together, that refers to um, Yahweh Adonai. Trust in Yahweh Adonai is an everlasting rock. He is eternal. And he's an everlasting rock, which leads us to the second aspect of I am who I am. This eternal Yahweh is self-sufficient. He's an everlasting rock. I was trying on, I was putting on some clothes every day at home, and I told my wife, I just kept putting on one shirt after the next, and I was like, all my, all my, all my clothes are shrinking. She said, uh, "She said, yeah, or or maybe uh, maybe she said it so diplomatically.' I was proud of her for this. Or maybe it's time to get back to the gym." I said, "Yeah, maybe it is." Which I, I appreciate from her Latin culture because she told me in her Latin culture they're usually not diplomatic; they just straight up say to one another, another in their family, "You're getting fat." <laughs> <laughs> so, so we go to the store to get some clothes that are a little bit bigger and. Uh, And there we run into a sister from HopeWorks, one of my wife's uh, Latin sisters from HopeWorks, Latina sisters from HopeWorks. And she goes up to Karen and she says, good, you're fattening up your husband. Karen (laughs) says, don't tell him that. We're just, uh, his clothes shrunk. And she comes up to me and she says, no, 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 you're you're getting fatter. (laughs) I said, thank you, thank you. All of that to say this, I change, I change. Over the years, I've changed. And I'm going to continue to change. But this is something that is so glorious about Yahweh. He is unchanging. He is eternal. He's eternally present. He's eternally new. He's eternally self-sufficient. We read that He is the eternal rock. In Psalm 18, verse 31 and 32, we read that for who is God but the Lord, who is Elohim but Yahweh, who is a rock except for elohim god is a rock i go to the rio grande national forest or 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 somewhere in in colorado and we we hike a mountain you know what i can hike a mountain i hiked 35 years ago that mountain has not changed i have changed the mountain has not changed god is a rock he is eternal he's eternally present he's eternally new he's eternally self-sufficient Just as the sun doesn't have to bask in the presence of another star to catch some rays because it emits its own strength and force of light, so God needs nothing outside of Himself to exist. He simply is. He always will be. And He is sufficient within Himself. If I am ever needs anything, I am will never come to us. If I am ever needs anything, which He won't, He will never come to us for counsel or for sufficiency. If I am ever has need or ever has need of counsel, which He will not, I am will simply go to I am. Because I am is self-sufficient. Now, God is Yahweh. Which means he's eternally, he's eternally present tense, he's eternally new, he's eternally self sufficient, and God attaches this essence of his present tense nature with his self sufficiency, with his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we go back to our text, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. If I say, What's your name? What is it? And God says, My name is I am, and he goes on in verse 15 to say, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Anytime in the Old Testament, when we see this, this trio of, of, of forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's a direct reference to the promise of, that God made with each of them. I will make you great. I will make your name great. You will multiply as a people. And I will give you a land that is rich and overflowing with milk and honey. So when God says His name, I am, meaning I am, who I am, I will be, who I will be, I am eternally present, I am eternally new, I am eternally self-sufficient, and He attaches His character to the promise that He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is saying, I've promised, I am a promise maker, and now I am attaching all of the weight of my nature and my character to my promise. And I am going to fulfill it. Even though it is finally circumstantially impossible for this promise to become a reality, I am going to make it happen. Because not only is my nature and my existence self-sufficient, but my promises to you are self-sufficient. In other words, my promises to you don't need cooperation from circumstances. My promises to you don't need cooperation from the government. They don't need cooperation from doctors. They don't need cooperation from the economy. They don't need cooperation from the job market. They don't need cooperation from what you can see or hear. Because my nature is self-sufficient and my character is directly tied to my nature and my promises are directly tied to my character. I am the promise maker and I am the promise keeper and I'm going to keep the promises because I am. Not because you have a reason to hope in your circumstances. I'm going to keep my promises to you because I am. In spite of your circumstances. Because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name forever, God says. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. See, hope is not being in a dark room. And saying, oh, is there hope, is there hope, is there hope? And finally, a circumstantial ray of light breaks into the room. And you look at that ray of light and you say, ha, See, there's hope. That's not hope. Because the Bible says hope seen is not hope at all. Hope is being in a dark room, no circumstantial ray of light shining through whatsoever. And yet, hoping anyway. Not because some circumstance justifies your hope, but because God promised that is hope. For who hopes for what He already has hope seen is not hope but when we hope against the unseen simply because God promised then Yahweh says now I will work gloriously on your behalf over 7,000 times in the Old Testament God is referred to as Yahweh it's his personal name or Jehovah and then God the Son in the New Testament personifies this name this is cool in john chapter eight we 'll pick up in verse fifty jesus he 's ministering he 's preaching he 's casting out demons he 's raising the dead and and then the Pharisees come like a pack of bulls and they pick a they pick a fight with him they start debating him they 're trying to find some fallacy in his thought process some pride in him some error in his theology and jesus said look i don 't seek my own glory there 's one who seeks it and he Is the judge. And on to verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And in verse 52, the Jews say to Jesus, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Now, Abraham lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then in verse 53, the Pharisees say to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Notice the exclamation mark, the indignation, their disdain. Who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorified myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And in verse 55, But you have not known Him, I know Him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And in verse 56, they are enraged. Your father, or Jesus goes on, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And in verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. He's probably 30, 33. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham And in verse 58, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Let's keep this up for a moment. Before Abraham was, Abraham, the forefather, who lived 3,000 years ago for us, 1,000 years ago for Jesus. Before Abraham was, and then Jesus speaks that name that they wouldn't even utter. And Jesus Utters it, and he utters it by calling himself this. Before Abraham was a thousand years ago, I am in the present tense, because I am the eternal God, the self-sufficient God, the promise maker, and who through my eternal nature and self-sufficiency, the promise keeper, even against circumstantial justification. God the Father, revealed as Yahweh, 7,000 plus times in the Old Testament, personified by Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and applied to us in all of the weight and power through the Spirit of Christ today. Acts chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. Jesus said, You will do greater things than me. It's because His Spirit, Yahweh Himself, will be within us. And this is a mysterious verse, and I picked a mysterious verse in Acts. 515, because Yahweh is mysterious. Peter, with the Holy Spirit, was walking along the streets, and people brought their sick, and they laid them on the streets. And when Peter walked by, his shadow cast over them, and just because of his shadow, they were healed. How does that line out with our theology? It's mysterious. Someone whose name sounds like the wind, that means eternally present, eternally new, eternally self sufficient, who makes promises and keeps promises without cooperation from circumstances, is mysterious. And when we approach Him, we have to approach Him with a sense of awe. This morning, when you approached to worship, did you approach with a sense of awe to meet with Yah? You know, through the name of God, Yahweh, there is an... Authenticity factor. An authenticity factor. Because we know who God is. He is Yahweh. We, by default, know who God is not. And if you don't have a sense of awe, if you don't have a sense that you're approaching someone who is eternal, someone who is all-powerful, and if you don't consequently feel a little overwhelmed and honored. Then perhaps you're not worshiping the Creator of all things, but instead you're worshiping a figment of your own imagination or a figment of somebody's imagination years ago that was eventually passed down to you in the form of religion. So that we stand, sit, stand, sit. Announcement, song, sermon, 45 minutes, we're done. Good. See y'all next week. This Yahweh says that I am Elohim, I created all things, but not just that, I am Yahweh, I speak my name because I created you for you to relate with me and experience me in all my power and weight and authority. So we know who God is therefore we know who God is not and if you're not approaching this eternal God perhaps you're approaching a figment of your own imagination and this is called religion but Yahweh is all about a passionate dynamic life-changing liberating relationship and through the name Yahweh there's the authenticity factors so that we can recognize who God is not. And then there's a promise associated with this eternal, present, always new, self-sufficient God. And this promise is that His promises will become a reality. Not with the help or cooperation from our, from our circumstances. But specifically in spite of them. So that He receives so much glory in our lives. And we are caught up in an experience With Yahweh. So, let's go back to our text. Exodus chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. And we see that the promise associated with Yahweh is that He sees you. He sees you. This eternal, present, self-sufficient, glorious, always new, promise maker sees you. This week, He saw you. He saw the cognitive dissonance in your mind. He saw the anxiety in your heart. He saw the tears. He saw the sorrow. He saw the sadness. He saw the despair. He sees you. And this is what Yahweh says to Moses. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Because for 350, 450 years, they've been wondering, where is God? Where are His promises? And then God shows up and He says, I see you. I'm eternally present. I see you. And not only that, I hear you. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt in Exodus 3 7, and I hear their cry. Yahweh sees, Yahweh hears, Yahweh, thirdly, is present. And he says, I have come down. I have come down to be with you. I have come down to be with you in the midst of your suffering. This is Yahweh. I see you. I hear you. I am present with you. And then we go on in verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Yahweh sees, hears, He's present and He has a plan. He's at work all around us for His glory, our heart's deepest delight and the hope of the world and God says I will make it happen I will keep my promises that's a fifth aspect of Yahweh He will be glorious by keeping His promises He will be glorious by keeping His promises because He will keep His promises in a way that contradicts our circumstances and overrides our circumstances so that we cannot help but worship Him and be in awe of Him would you stand with me please Yahweh is glorious. Is your God too small? Or is your God glorious and awesome? In response, I just want to invite you to cast your cares on Yahweh. The One who sees, the One who hears, the One who is present, the One who is at work, And the one who makes it happen. Cast your cares on Yahweh. Because Yahweh cares so much for you. And surrender your life so that your life is the channel bank through which the river of Yahweh can flow into this world as Peter's shadow healed. Like how does that line up? with structure and theology. It's mysterious. But again, how can somebody with the name be anything but glorious and mysterious? So surrender your life and say, Yahweh, let me be the riverbanks through which your power and love can flow into this world. Let me be the window through which your light and love can flow into this world. Let me be the, the source through which your power and authority emit into this world and this can only happen through surrender so let's just respond let's worship Yahweh because Yahweh deserves to be worshipped but don't worship Yahweh casually, don't worship Yahweh indifferently don't worship him insincerely don't worship him half heartedly he's Yahweh he's eternal and he's glorious give him glory And when you worship Yahweh as Yahweh deserves to be worshipped, you will experience Yahweh and it will change your life. And in response, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar to pray. I'm going to ask you to worship wholeheartedly. Let's experience Yahweh. You can make your way down now. I'm also going to ask Robert Borelli, who received a a doctor's report that he has cancer. I'm going to ask him to come forward and pray, and we're going to lay hands on him. We're going to anoint him with oil, as Scripture instructs, which is a symbolism of the Holy Spirit. And we're just going to pray for healing upon him. And if you would like for prayer for healing as well, uh, feel free just to line up on either side, and we'll lay hands upon you and pray for healing for you. Let's just respond. Let's encounter God.